City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. Contrary to what some people think, no one is born into this world with a neutral attitude towards God, which can go either one way or another. That's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that we were all born into this world with sinful natures, meaning that at the very core of our being, we are bent on rebelling against God. And therefore, we resist any gospel witness made to us about trusting Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, the scripture says that we oppose God, we hate God until we are converted. We're not neutral. We're hostile towards him. The Apostle Paul makes the point of this universal condition of resistance and rebellion very clear in his letter to the Ephesians. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, Paul says, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Folks, this was our condition before salvation, all of us. Neutral attitude toward God. What an interesting way to start our verse-by-verse broadcast. Today we're continuing with our series that is titled Stephen's Defense Before the Sanhedrin. Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He is also the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. But let's get back to that concept of being neutral toward God. I had someone once tell me they were neutral toward God, but when I explained that the Bible teaches no one is neutral toward God, that person didn't believe me. We're all born with sinful natures. Today on our program, Pastor Steve will start to talk about the doctrine of irresistible grace. You may wonder how that will fit in our passage of Acts chapter 7, but we're going to let Pastor Steve explain all of that on today's Verse by Verse. One of the great doctrines of our faith is known as irresistible grace. Now, this doctrine is nowhere mentioned by name in Scripture, but it is a truth that is seen throughout the Bible. So what is irresistible grace? Well, it is the sovereign work of God in an unsaved person's life whereby the Lord overcomes their resistance to the gospel by bestowing on them his grace in saving them. Simply put, irresistible grace means that when God decides to work in the heart of an individual who has been resisting him, that individual eventually will give up their resistance and come to Christ for salvation. Jesus put it this way in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is irresistible grace in action. It is the power of God 
at work drawing someone who otherwise would not come to Christ for salvation. This particular Greek word that is translated in our English Bibles, draw, has the thought of compelling force. Compelling force. It is the very same word used in other Greek literature of a fisherman dragging a net or people being dragged by a mob, making, in both cases, resistance impossible. They're dragged. And that's exactly what happens when a sinner is drawn to Christ. In spite of their history of resistance of the gospel, it is impossible for them to continue to resist when the Holy Spirit compels them to Christ. And the reason this irresistible drawing and compelling is necessary is because without it, no one would ever come to Jesus for salvation. See, contrary to what some people think, no one is born into this world with a neutral attitude towards God, which can go either one way or another. That's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that we were all born into this world with sinful natures, meaning that at the very core of our being, we are bent on rebelling against God. And therefore, we resist any gospel witness made to us about trusting Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, the scripture says that we oppose God, we hate God until we are converted. We're not neutral. We're hostile towards him. The Apostle Paul makes the point of this universal condition of resistance and rebellion very clear in his letter to the Ephesians. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, Paul says, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Folks, this was our condition before salvation. All of us, every single one of us. Now, the reason that I'm bringing up the doctrine of irresistible grace this morning is because we find ourselves these days in a study of the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 7, whereas we've seen Stephen, the first one who'd ever be martyred for the faith, Stephen is forced to defend himself before the Supreme Court of Israel on the false accusation that he has spoken against Moses and the law of God, and as well as against the temple of God that stood at that time in the city of Jerusalem. But in the process of presenting his defense, Stephen turns the tables on the men of the Sanhedrin by making a stunning accusation against them. He accuses them. Remember, they are the religious leaders of his nation. He accuses them of being just like their ancestors in Old Testament times, because like their ancestors, whom he calls the fathers, he says they always resist God and his truth. They did it back then. You're doing it now. If you look at Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, and I keep coming back to this these days because this is the climax of the message. This is where Stephen is headed. In fact, this is what got Stephen killed. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, 
and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, what Stephen means by all of this is that in spite of all the biblical truth that these men have been exposed to, remember, they've known the scriptures since they've been very, very young. In spite of all the biblical truth that they've been exposed to, they continue to resist the Holy Spirit's voice by disregarding what he has said through the Old Testament prophets about the coming Messiah. In fact, They are so resistant and so unresponsive to what the Holy Spirit has said that they actually killed the Messiah when he came. The Messiah who their own prophets predicted would come. See, the men of the Sanhedrin are a perfect illustration of why the truth of God's irresistible grace is important. It's so important, and it is so essential for salvation. These men As I said, they were very familiar with the scriptures. They knew the Bible. These men witnessed firsthand the miracles of Jesus. They saw those miracles with their own eyes. And they heard his remarkable teaching, his remarkable wisdom, and yet they rejected him and murdered him. So how do we explain this? How is this even possible? Well, their resistance can only be explained by the fact that it stems from being dead in their sins and trespasses, as Paul said. They were incapable of responding to God because dead people can't respond. They can respond physically, but we're talking about being spiritually dead. They're unresponsive. They were living in the lusts of their flesh, behaving in accordance with their sinful heart's desires, so they chose to not have Christ reign over them. They were quite content in their sin, and dead in their sin. And the only way any of the men of the Sanhedrin would ever stop resisting the Holy Spirit is if God intervened in their lives with his irresistible grace and drew them to himself. Now, he actually did this, A little bit later, as we'll see in the book of Acts, with one of the members of the Sanhedrin, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. And concerning the Sanhedrin's resistance to the Holy Spirit and people's resistance today to the Holy Spirit, theologian R.C. Sproul wrote these words. Irresistible grace does not mean that we are incapable of resisting the grace of God. We do that every day. What is meant by irresistible grace is that despite our resistance, the power of the Holy Spirit vanquishes our sinful rejection of Christ and gives us ears to hear and hearts to embrace him. However, that was not the response of those present, which is why Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He continues, anytime a large group gathers for worship, it is virtually inevitable that among their number, there are some who are not true believers. They may be members of the church, but they still resist the Holy Spirit, and their necks have become stiff. They are set in their ways, and their hearts have been calcified. They have no hearing in their ears for the things of God. Oh, they hear the sermons, but it never gets past the outer canal of their ears. There are people like that right now in all our churches. Now, folks, the reason it's important for us to understand these issues about 
resisting the Lord is because in the section of Stephen's defense that we are going to study this morning, he proves his point that the Jewish people have a history of resisting the Holy Spirit. And he does it by revealing how they rejected and continually resisted their divinely appointed leader, Moses. And the relevancy of all of this concerning Jewish history for us is that people do the same thing today. This is not a Jewish issue. This is a human heart issue. We resist the Spirit. We reject Christ for the very same reason. As R.C. Sproul said, there are people in churches who hear the sermons, but it never gets past, he said, the outer canal of their ears. What he means is it just never penetrates the heart. It doesn't go deeper than what you physically hear. And so they continue to resist the Holy Spirit because they want to live by their own set of rules, their own standards, or as Paul puts it, according to the lusts of their flesh. So as we go through these verses in which Stephen explains the Jewish resistance to Moses, I want to draw out the principles, the principles that are timeless and for all of us, and so that we might understand what resistance to the Holy Spirit looks like and the underlying causes of such resistance with the hope that the Lord will use these truths to awaken some to their own resistance and their need for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So as we continue our study of Stephen's message before the Sanhedrin, I remind you of what we studied last week. Having been wrongfully accused of speaking against Moses and the law of God, Stephen defends himself by saying only positive things about Moses. He divides Moses' life into three 40-year time periods. And he spends verses 17 through 29 speaking of the first 40 years of the life of Moses, where he explains that Moses, though highly qualified to be Israel's deliverer, he was initially rejected by the Jewish people when he intervened in a couple of disputes on two consecutive days. The first dispute ended with Moses killing an Egyptian who was mistreating a fellow Jew. The Bible says he buried the man in the sand. He didn't think anybody saw. But the very next day, he tried to intervene in a second dispute And it resulted in Moses fleeing Egypt for the land of Midian when he realized that others had discovered his act of murder and therefore he knew that his life was in danger and he had to leave. Now the primary purpose of Stephen in telling the Sanhedrin about these two incidents is to make the point that the Jewish people, instead of receiving Moses as their leader, as they should have done, they rejected him. And where Stephen is headed with this fact is that he is soon going to connect the dots for the Sanhedrin so that they can see that there is a correlation, a connection between the Jewish people and them in particular rejecting Jesus Christ as the ultimate deliverer. The Jewish people rejected Moses. They have rejected Jesus as well. There is a pattern that emerges. See, although Moses thought that the Jewish people would recognize him as their God-sent deliverer, Stephen tells us they didn't. They didn't recognize him. They should have. They reacted to his attempt to resolve their disputes. The Bible says they pushed him away. 
They physically pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? In other words, they rejected him as their deliverer, and so he fled to the desert area of Midian, where he lived for the next 40 years. Verse 29 says this, at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, this is where the first 40 years of the life of Moses ends, and this is where we left off. Last week. And so, starting in verse 30, Stephen moves on to speak about the second 40 year period of the life of Moses, the 40 years that Moses spent in Midian. So we move on to that. Verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. Now, interestingly, Stephen passes over the next 40 years of Moses' life in Midian until he comes to the end of this time period to tell us about an event that was to change the course of Moses' life and the course of human history. He tells us about the day that an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. Exodus 3, 1 and 2 gives us the background of what Stephen is now saying. We read, now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Now, what we read here is that Moses was taking care of his father-in-law's flock out in the wilderness, and apparently this had been his occupation for all of these years. He had been a shepherd for 40 years, a very different life than he had known in the royal court of Egypt. So he's a shepherd, and he's an experienced shepherd. He's been doing this a lot of years. He's spent countless hours out in the wilderness, and so he's very familiar with the ways of the desert. He's not a novice, but on this particular day, he saw something he had never seen before. In all of these years, he had never seen this. He saw a thorn bush on fire. Now, that in and of itself, that's really not unusual. It happens a lot in the desert, but what was unusual about this burning bush was that it wasn't consumed by the fire. It just kept burning and didn't stop. It didn't burn out. So according to Exodus 3.3, Moses said this. He said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. Now, little did Moses realize that what he was observing was a miracle. It was a supernatural event because as he approached the burning bush to get a better look, he heard God's voice speak to him from out of the bush. And as Stephen continues, he explains what happened and what God said to Moses on that day. We continue verses 31 through 34. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. So as Moses drew closer to the bush, frankly got the surprise of his life. The voice of God spoke to him from out of the bush, telling him that he was the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And in identifying himself this way, God is making a very clear statement to Moses that he is the one who years earlier made a covenant with Abraham and affirmed it with Isaac and affirmed it with Jacob. It was a covenant we usually call it the Abrahamic covenant to care for the descendants of Abraham, to care for the Jewish people. And what he was doing in speaking to Moses is reaffirming that covenant with him. So this is a solemn moment in the life of Moses, not simply because God was speaking to him, but because God was speaking to him about something that involved keeping his word, his covenant, his faithfulness to his people And Moses knew that it involved him. And so, what was Moses' reaction to all of this? Well, you've read here, he trembled with fear. He looked away from the burning bush. And the reason he did this is because he realized that he was in the presence of holy God. And that's exactly how someone should react when God appears to them. And I point this out to you because in our day, there have been some who have claimed that they have had a vision of God or that God has appeared to them or that they have been to heaven and spoken to the Lord and now they're back on earth. Listen, none of these claims are true, not because I say this, but because Scripture says this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, makes it very clear that God is not speaking to us in visions and appearances anymore like he did in Old Testament times. Because why? Now we have the completed revelation of God. We have the word of God, which is referred to in Hebrews chapter 1 as God speaking in his son. Let me read this to you. Hebrews opens this way. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, meaning Old Testament times, in many portions and in many ways, In these last days, in these days, he has spoken to us in his son. He's not speaking to us like he used to. Visions and dreams and appearances. He's speaking to us now in the last days. And the last day started with the coming of Jesus. He's speaking to us now in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. But listen, one thing these fallacious claims have in common, these claims of having seen God, is that they often speak of this experience in a very flippant way, a very lighthearted way, as if it's almost a trivial thing. Oh yeah, God appeared to me last week, and we talked, and we're good. That type of tone. I know of a man who said that Jesus appeared to him while he was shaving, and the man who he said this to said, what did you do? And he said, well, I kept on shaving. Listen, that's not what happens when God appears to you. You don't keep on shaving. You don't do anything but fall on your face and recognize how sinful you are to be in the presence of God. When God appeared to Moses, this is what Moses did. 
He trembled in fear because he knew that being a sinful human being, that's how you react when you are in the presence of Almighty Holy God. You don't continue doing anything. You fall on your face, you tremble, you look away. You recognize your sinful heart. This is precisely the reaction of Isaiah in the Old Testament and the Apostle John in the New Testament when they were given a glimpse of God. We spent a fair amount of time today talking about Moses meeting God in the burning bush and Moses' reaction. He was terrified. And I appreciated this part of Stephen's defense and the way Pastor Steve has explained it to us. I fear way too often we as followers of Jesus Christ are much too casual in the way we approach God. On our next verse-by-verse broadcast, Pastor Steve will again pick up this topic of reverence to God. So let me encourage you to tune in for the next broadcast and be ready to examine your heart in the light of God's Word. If you would like to hear any of these verse-by-verse broadcasts again, let me encourage you to head over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the verse-by-verse podcast. That's versebyverseradio.org.